The sun was blazing in the sky and waves of shimmering heat Glared down on the railway cutting, we were half dead on our feet And the ganger stood on the bank of the cut and snarled at the men below You'd better keep them shovels full or all of you cows will go I never saw such a useless mob, you'd make a fella sick As shovel men, you're hopeless and you're no good with the pick there were men in the gang could belt him with a hand tied at the back But he had the power behind him and we daren't risk the sack So we took his insults in silence for this was the period when We lived in the Great Depression and nothing was cheaper than men and we... So welcome to the second part of our podcast on Bodyline or The Empire Strikes Back here we start with Alex asking Hugh about who made the decisions, mostly political, about what happened to Douglas Jardine and others associated with Bodyline after the fateful tour was over. And who are the um, movers and shakers in the MCC who are taking these dis- these highly political decisions? Uh, is it coming, you know, directly from the Common and Foreign Wealth Office? Uh, well, sorry, the Foreign and uh, the the Office of the Colonies and Dominions, the Foreign Office, or is it coming from, um, uh, you know, the the MCC themselves? How are these political decisions being derived? There was a big crossover between uh, the committee of the MCC and the, the British establishment, uh, there were members of the House of Lords, uh, there were ministers and so on who were on the MCC committee. So there wasn't this enormous separation. Uh, the real villain, as far as I can see, and the most duplicitous person in, in the whole thing was uh, Plum Warner, uh, who was the manager of the tour and was also extremely influential in the MCC and a couple of years after became secretary uh, of the MCC. Uh, So he was uh, instrumental in stabbing uh, Jardine in the back, um, which he did during the tour itself. Um, In the early part of the tour, he was openly uh, briefing the press about what a bastard Jardine was and then saying different things to Jardine. Um, Warner was also almost certainly Gubby Allen's father, uh, which uh, created a a problem within the team. Bob Wyatt, who was the vice captain, said we all knew it and they operated as a pair. Um, So it was it was a difficult uh, position uh, for Jardine because of the duplicity of uh, Warner and Allen. They were actually from uh, similar backgrounds. Uh, Warner's father had been uh, ad- advocate general of uh, Trinidad, and. Jardine's father eventually became Advocate General of Bombay. So they were from very similar backgrounds, didn't go to the same school, um, but uh, they couldn't stand each other. Um, So, uh, So you just just mentioned that Alan was uh, the son of Plum Warner, allegedly. Allegedly. Just tell us how that worked then. Um, he was uh, born in Australia, Alan. Yeah, in, in 1903, uh, England had been on tour in, Aus- in Australia and uh, Warner had a number of women friends there, including Alan's mother, uh, who was married. And so... Uh, Warner stayed with the Allen family in Sydney. Um, nine months later, Mrs. Allen had, had a child that looked just like Warner. Um, Warner also uh, found a new woman uh, on the uh, Bodyline tour 
during the second uh, test match, he took up with this woman again in Sydney. And uh, eventually after the tour, with Warner's wife's permission, he shipped her back to England, uh, kept her for the, the rest of her life, paid for her and so on. So he, he had women all over the place. And uh, it's a very slippery character indeed. Indeed. Yeah, everything I've read, about, nobody has a good word for Warner at all. He seems to be a, a uniquely unpleasant character. I had no idea about the story about uh, him being Gabby Allen's or Gabby Allen's father. That's uh, a nice bit of gossip there. Let's just go ahead and check the situation legally before we broadcast. Uh, <laughs> Last question from me. Uh, we, we'll, we'll blame it on Bob Wyatt, who was the vice captain. Bob Wyatt said we all knew it. Is that okay? We'll blame it. So Bob Wyatt said, okay, that's good. They can always go ahead and <laughs> Bob Wyatt. Excellent. Uh, last question, because the MCC um, and the English establishment seem to get pretty much behind the, the team uh, after the Adelaide test and the telegram. What made them cave in afterwards and basically shaft Jardine, shaft Larwood and express great shame about the test series and the way it went? What made them change? It was the concerns about the 1934 tour, really. Um, so when the team got back to England, uh, some of the team were interviewed. So it was the manager and the assistant manager. So Warner, Pallaret, um, Jardine, and then Larwood and Vos. So the MCC, and I believe Warner, had targeted uh, the two fast bowlers, the two professionals. So there were a number of other people who were more senior in the team, like Wyatt, Sutcliffe, Hammond, and so on, who weren't asked for their opinion at all. So became clear then that uh, Jardine, Larwood and Vos uh, were being uh, hung, out, hung out to dry. Uh, the press also wanted to uh, talk to Larwood and uh, Jardine and so on. Uh, Larwood, using Jardine's tactics of deliberately winding people up, accused Australian crowds of being unsportsmanlike, which is the phrase that was used in the cable. Um, so it was really concern about uh, the 1934 tour. Um, it was then concern about uh, changes in the laws and so on. Um, so the concern about the 1934 tour, the Sir Julian Khan, who was very senior in the MCC, asked Larwood to sign an apology to the MCC. Um, that had been drafted by Jimmy Thomas. Again, Larwood refused. Um, so the MCC, because they're concerned about the money from the 1934 tour, were doing everything they could to get Australia to come, including making sure there was no short pitch bowling, feather bed pitches. Bradman made enormous scores in that uh, series and Australia won. There was also a, an incident where Vos was pulled out of the Knots versus Australia game that summer and was told that he had to, to fake an injury. So for a few days he said, he said that he'd been injured and then with Larwood's encouragement he came out and said no he'd been told to fake it. Carr, the uh, Knots captain who'd been uh, absent from that game, he'd been ill, uh, said that Vos was right, and the Knox committee then sacked Carr. <laughs> so uh, it, it was the working class fast bowlers who were hung out to dry. Um, a member of the Knox committee uh, said that Larwood had been sacrificed on the altar of imperialism. I do, I do think that, perf that takes us perfectly into a discussion about the imperial crisis. Um, so the body line tour is uh, is uh, referred to as the crisis uh, of the empire, and let's just 
pick apart um, why it's achieved that status, which goes far beyond uh, the facts of the cricket, uh, which we've just been discussing. Um, so just to set tee you up here, Hugh, I mean, obviously we uh, were accustomed to we're accustomed to the, uh, the the public recognition now of the sacrifice of the Anzac troops um, at Gallipoli and, and elsewhere in the First World War now. Um, but the legend of uh, the way in which the Australians in particular uh, and New Zealanders had been thrown at the Turkish guns uh, by Churchill in a completely vainglorious attempt to take Gallipoli, the way that fed into uh, the sense of uh, resentment uh, in Australia uh, about the treatment of the Australian troops in the First World War, the escalating, the escalating tensions, it has to be said, by the early 1920s between dominions such as Australia and Canada uh, and New Zealand, uh, and the Imperial Centre in London. All of these are creating uh, a series of tensions which come out in the reporting and the, the public reception uh, of, the, of the Body Line tour. Can you just talk about the Imperial crisis of that period a bit and the way in which the tour uh, fed into that? The stock market crash of 1929 uh, had an enormous impact uh, around the world, but it had a disproportionate impact on uh, Australia, which was because of the unbalanced economy, uh, because it was based on commodities, mining and so on, and agriculture. Uh, and there wasn't a broad base of manufacturing uh, and so on. Uh, so because it was primary uh, resources, the, the impact was far deeper. It was also uh, poorly handled uh, as well. So there was a Labour government elected in on the 12th of October 1929 uh, and the Wall Street crash happened on the 24th of October. So this created a crisis in the Labour Party which we might go into later. But the impact of that was that unemployment shot up Unemployment at the time of the Bodyline tour was about 35%. The first reaction to the, the crash in 1929 had been to leave the, the gold standard, which led to 30% deflation, which absolutely crippled the little bit of manufacturing that there was. It crippled uh, the working class because of the enormous growth of unemployment, but it saved the bank, banks. Uh, the birth rate in the three years uh, between the crash and the tour fell by 25%. The GDP fell by 12%. The value of wheat and wool halved. In 1931, the Arbitration Court imposed a 20% cut on all, on all wage rates. So there were shanty towns, there was enormous growth of crime, homelessness, um, the debt burden uh, to the UK, and particularly to the Bank of England, grew massively. Uh, the fact that the Sydney Harbour Bridge was finished in 1931 threw thousands out of work all at one time. Uh, so in one week, uh, there were thousands and thousands of building workers made redundant. Uh, and it was the governor of the Bank of England, also Niemeyer, uh, who went to Australia in 1931 and effectively imposed austerity. And so the repayment of the debt was the uh, thing that Australia needed to concentrate on and to hell with the unemployed. Um, Jack Fingleton, uh, writing in, in his professional capacity, not about cricket, uh, wrote about the nonsensical contradictions of Nehemiah's stand in a land of primary abundance. So there were riots, there were police physically attacking uh, unemployed demonstrations, 
there were the Adelaide beef riots of 1931, where beef had been taken off the relief rations. So the idea that Adelaide was um, a quiet, docile place in 1931-32 uh, is given a lie by these beef riots where uh, police were shooting uh, protesters. Um, there was also Bloody Friday in Sydney where the police killed 18 protesters who were trying to defend communist squatters. And there was a whole series of riots uh, in <coughs> Sydney uh, around that time. Um, just on the communists, the Communist Party hadn't covered itself in glory because uh, Kavanaugh, who was the General Secretary of the Communist Party in 1929, argued that Australia was uh, an exception to the position being taken by uh, the international and that it wouldn't suffer uh, in the uh, global collapse. It did, it actually suffered far worse. And the international had to find a way of uh, easing Kavanaugh out and replacing leadership. So the, the Communist Party at, at the time was in a real mess. And it wasn't until after the body line tour that it actually started to get its uh, position sorted out and started to help build unions and so on. So there was a bit of a lack of leadership of the working class at the time. And the Labour Party had split as well over the issue of uh, the repayment of the debts. So socially and economically, it was a period of absolute turmoil in Australia. Um, and it was largely because of the impositions uh, made by the Bank of England. So I think that helped fuel resentment and got the crowds uh, worked, worked up during the Body Line series. Is that one of the reasons why the Australians uh, got so angry about the defeat? They saw the tour as a chance to unify uh, and cheer up a very divided country uh, and a good chance to go ahead and batter the palms who'd inflicted this pain on them. Possibly. <laughs> And thought of that. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, they didn't take defeat particularly badly, but uh, to what extent as well, because I'm interested in this Catholic and Freemason split, uh, to what extent was Australian politics at the time shaped by uh, the Catholic element versus the Masonic? The, the Irish and Catholic influence in Australia was far greater than in Britain. If, if you looked at the proportions of people it, uh, of, of the different religions. It shows how many people in the late uh, 19th century had come from Ireland. Um, so, and the Irish were at the root of the Australian Labour Party. It varied slightly from uh, city to city um, but in the two main cities it was certainly uh, the case that uh, the, the Irish were at, at the core of the Labour Party. If you just look at the names of some of the uh, senior politicians uh, you, you can see that they're Irish names uh, by and large. Uh, Fingleton's father was a, a Labour MP in New South Wales um, and Fingleton himself was uh, a leading member of the, of the Labour Party. So there was that, that influence. The, the split in the Labour Party, which when Lang Labour and uh, Jack Lang, who was the Prime Minister of New South Wales, uh, said that Labour shouldn't be repaying the, the debts or shouldn't be paying the interest on the debts. Uh, that led to the Governor-General of uh, New South Wales sacking Lang and created all sorts of political ramifications. But the split in the Labour Party meant that Labour lost the general election in 1931 and Joe Lyons, the leader of the Labour Party, did a Ramsay MacDonald and joined the United Australia Party and uh, stayed on as Prime Minister for the rest of the 1930s. Uh, so 
uh, it was a mess the working class institutions fell apart um, the banks did very well um, the big companies like broken hill propriety actually did very very well out of the crisis they had a little blip but uh, within months were, were back in into profits and so on so capital did very big capital did very well out of the crisis and the working class and its institutions were absolutely shafted. Hugh, could you talk a little about any interaction between the tour and the rhetoric and economics of empire? Then Alex, if you could give us a little bit more about the context of the tour, in particular, the political economy of the empire, that would be very useful for me. At the start of the tour, the England party stopped in Western Australia, played a, a couple of games, and there was a reception at a town called York. It was a dinner, and Warner spoke first and said, I'm a humble servant of the MCC that sends teams to all parts of the world to spread the gospel of British fair play and as developed in its national sport. So it was all that sort of stuff that uh, he put in his book, Imperial Cricket. Jardine was then asked to speak, and Jardine spoke about the Imperial Economic Conference in Ottawa a couple of weeks before, and uh, talked about the economics of empire. And it was where Joe Lyons, the Australian Prime Minister, had agreed a free trade deal with uh, the, the UK. So not done in, uh, it wasn't a level playing field, but it was a fair trade fair trade, free trade deal, uh, all the same. So that was uh, part of the uh, economic shuffling uh, of responsibilities uh, that Jardine was interested in, whereas Warner just came out with the ideological guff about empire. And this is only a few years after the great Durbar in uh, India, which was seen as the peak uh, of empire. But some of the things that were said there, uh, uh, speeches given, including the speech given by the king on his uh, coronation as emperor of India, uh, about this empire continuing for centuries uh, uh, and so on, uh, was all complete guff when behind the scenes, uh, they, they were seriously worried about the finances of empire. So, I mean, I think that what this touches on is the big contradiction which the British Empire, uh, the largest empire the world had ever seen at that stage, was facing in the interwar period. And we just need to remember, you know, the, the inter-imperialist war between the great powers of Europe, which ended with the dismembering of the German Empire in 1918-1919 at the Treaty of Versailles, uh, leads to Britain and France essentially taking Germany's imperial possessions uh, in Africa uh, and elsewhere. It leads to Britain becoming, by a long way, the largest empire the world has ever seen, but one that faces uh, existential financial crisis uh, because the cost of keeping open the sea lanes for the British Empire is uh, extraordinary and the British economy, the economy of the empire is effectively crippled by the cost of keeping open, uh, by, by the cost of the Royal Navy uh, in keeping open the sea lanes faced with the growing economic rivalry from the United States and most importantly of course the fact of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union. Uh, the British ruling class is trying to desperately find a way in which its imperial power can be maintained, extended and above all not bankrupt it. Um, so we see this big pivot by the uh, Britain's political uh, ruling elite 
in the 19, from the 19, late 1930s to the early 1930s from a position of advocating imperial free trade uh, and effectively they were arguing in the 1930s uh, for some kind of economic uh, free trade area in Europe. Um, so in 1926, for example, the International Bankers Manifesto signed by leading bankers and trust magnates in Britain and in some other countries as well, issued something called a plea for the removal of restrictions upon European trade. And they argued uh, production as a whole has been diminished on account of false ideals of national interests regarding trading as a form of war. And it ended with a clarion call for the establishment of economic freedom as the best hope of restoring the commerce and the credit of the world. And that attempt, uh, which was, you know, fronted precisely by leaders of monopoly capital in Britain, such as um, uh, the Vickers Corporation uh, and others, that attempt really comes to an end uh, with the Wall Street crash. And you then have a very rapid pivot by the British ruling class towards the policy of imperial preference which was effectively the idea of building a protectionist tariff barrier around the British Empire. Um, so within a few years, uh, they issued a new manifesto. Um, I think this is actually 1930 before the Wall Street crash. But the Wall Street crash kind of confirmed what was already going on, arguing that bitter experience has taught Great Britain that the hopes expressed four years ago in a plea for the removal of restrictions on European trade have failed to be realized. And they ended up um, saying that while we retain the hope of an ultimate extension of the area of free trade throughout the world, we believe the immediate step for securing and extending the market for British goods lies in reciprocal trade agreements between nations constituting the British Empire. And, and that's what the Ottawa conference that Jardine was talking about is doing yes absolutely so the ottawa conference and there, it wasn't there were a number of other attempts at imperial conferences uh, in the same in the same period but the ottawa conference is the kind of crowning um well, well the, the, the the high point of this is this attempt to <clears throat> implement the policy of imperial preference imperial protectionism which was first talked about in the 1880s uh, by Joseph Chamberlain, uh, the MP for South Birmingham, uh, who was originally elected as a Liberal MP, but crossed the well, left the Liberal Party to form uh, something called the Liberal Unionists, who eventually crossed the floor and joined um, the Balfour government, the Conservative government, uh, in the um, eighteen in the eighteen nineties. So this is a really significant uh, concept in terms of. The British ruling class's uh, argument uh, about how how to conduct imperialism, and it, it's it's very contemporary, really, when you hear the arguments going on uh, around leaving the European Union, um, the European Union, which is of course a protectionist uh, a protectionist trade bloc, and um, the ruling class in Britain arguing for alternative strategies uh, for how to um, for, for, for how to uh, take forward their class interests. Anyway, that, that's the background to the body line test, is the fact that the British Empire and the British ruling class were in crisis and were attempting to find a way out of that crisis by shifting the cost burden from uh, over to the Australians and the other colonies and dominions uh, in order to uh, maintain the British Empire's ability to extract profits. And it might explain the reason behind the rather large conversion loan that the Brits made to Australia, because it helped keep uh, Australia going and also helped keep them dependent and compliant, I guess. Yes, indeed. I'm going to ask a question now to Hugh, following on from the previous stuff. Uh, Hugh, given that nice little picture you've given us there of Australian politics uh, in uh, late 20s and into the 30s, to what extent did the Body Line Tour influence Australian politics? And also, how did it influence the ongoing relationship between the Empire and Australia? 
body line revealed the duplicity of the British work, uh, ruling, ruling class. Um, it exposed all the contradictions. It showed that uh, the different mechanisms that were being used to control the dominions and the colonies uh, were revealed. The, the mechanics of, of empire uh, became quite clear to uh, the Australian public, to the Australian press, um, and that started to uh, change the, the relationship. But there were other things going on in Australia at the same time. As I said, the, uh, the banks survived. Um, so big capital in uh, Australia uh, continued to uh, develop and set, set the agenda. So because of the way that banks were structured and there was um, a banking reform in 1935, which led to the separation of savings banks from merchant banks, the, and, and it was very difficult for foreign capital, apart from uh, the UK, to break into uh, that area. So there was a growth of uh, capitalism within uh, Australia in the late 30s, um, which without really creating prosperity, it started to move things forward. And uh, there was a, a growth in employment. Uh, so the, the situation certainly improved towards the end of the 1930s, but there was an indigenous uh, capital, uh, if you like. That was facilitated by the numerous uh, stock, stock exchanges that there were in Australia. So you had small cities like Adelaide, which at the time only had a population of a quarter of a million. It had its own stock exchange. Uh, so there was uh, capital growth uh, there. And Bradman was involved in that. Bradman became a stockbroker in Adelaide. I'll explain a bit more about that later and the chicanery that went on there. Um, so it led to more self-reliance in, in Australia. So if you, although the Holden Car Company was owned by General Motors, if you look at the uh, development of the Holden Car Company from 1930 through to uh, the beginning of this year, when it, it ceased to operate, that arc uh, explains a lot about what's happened to uh, the Australian economy. And so there was a period, uh, particularly in the 50s and 60s, where it was relatively diversified, but that's disappeared. Um, with uh, white goods, cars, all those sorts of things are not made in Australia anymore. Australia has gone back to the situation uh, that it was in in the early part of the 20th century, uh, being almost entirely dependent on primary resources, and particularly mining. Uh, so Western Australia, for instance, uh, is completely dependent on the prices of, of commodities. Uh, my brother lived in, has lived most of his adult life in Western Australia. Um, but because of the state of the economy there, he's had to move to New Zealand for the last couple of years because it's the only place he can find work. Um, so the economy diversified for decades, but, it, but it's, uh, it's gone backwards. So Australia's situation in global trade now has gone back to the position it was in, uh, in the empire. Uh, early on. So Australian politics uh, has carried on in a similar vein uh, to before 1934 with a significant Labour Party, but it's a social democratic party, um, which is tied into uh, neoliberalism. Um, and that hasn't really, really changed. So that 
the position of the Labour Party, despite the, the breaches having been healed during the Second World War and the, the split sort of patched over, uh, it's, uh, it's still continued uh, to be the puppet of, of capital. So there's been an element of Americanization in uh, Austra Australian politics. It looks more like Australian, uh, it looks more like America now uh, than it did uh, 50 to 100 years ago. Um, and that, that's led to a shifting identity, which we might come on to uh, later on. Regarding the reaction to body wine, was it, and this gets on to some of the bullshit and mystique that surrounds cricket, uh, the Australians seem to be generally upset that the mother nation of this great glorious game, okay, played by people for the joy of playing uh, and the furtherance of mankind rather than winning, had performed in such a in such a heinous way and actually tried to win so ruthlessly. Uh, do you think to a certain extent the tour shattered some Australian illusions about uh, the British? Uh, and also to what extent is all that guff about cricket and the glory of sport a little bit of bullshit? I think the uh, Australians, uh, Woodfall in particular, uh, the press, uh, some of the politicians were genuinely surprised by what happened in Bodyline. And as I to use the phrase I used earlier, the mechanics of empire were laid bare. Um, so it did come as a, a shock. Um, and that was never a, a feeling of uh, disappointment, betrayal and so on. Uh, never entirely... Uh, went away. Even in the um, moves to try and heal things like the law changes uh, in to try and address the, the cricket issues of, of body line. Uh, again, the establishment's duplicity was uh, revealed. So the Australian Cricket Board proposed uh, changes to the laws in 1934, no, no, 1935. Um, and uh, Plum Warner found a way of being uh, a delegate to the Imperial Cricket Conference so he could have his say. So he turned up at the meeting representing South Africa. So th this was uh, a white man brought up in Trinidad who'd been captain of England, manager of England on the body line tour. And there he was at the rules meeting representing South Africa. So all that was, was laid bare to uh, the Australians and the Australian cricket establishment started to see itself as the uh, upholder of, of the values and of cricket. Um, and that, that persisted, uh, the, the feeling of Australia crickets being honest and, and straightforward against the chicanery uh, of, of the MCC. Um, but it took, it took a long time for the grip of the MCC to be uh, prized open. Um, and it's only really uh, the rise of India as uh, an economic force in, in world cricket that has shifted that balance of power away from Lords. The point that's made by some writers on the, in this imperial crisis in cricket is that it exacerbated previously existing tendencies. So I think you remarked briefly on this earlier in the conversation, but um, the chicanery of the MCC and the British, the Imperial establishment, which is revealed by this episode. What it also reveals is the underlying tendencies that had been existing in existence for 30 years or more uh, in the way that the game was evolving differently uh, in Australia compared to uh, in England. So I think it's remarked on that um, by some writers that firstly, cricket in Australia was far more egalitarian in general in terms of participation. So uh, as well as, you know, middle class 
professionals like uh, doctors, lawyers playing cricket. Uh, there would also be um, working class trade or tradesmen, uh, mechanics uh, and labourers, people, you know, bricklayers, uh, people working in, in industry would also be playing alongside each other in cricket. The cricket was played in, as you've already pointed out, in organised leagues uh, from a much earlier period as opposed to these invitation 11s which uh, had existed at the uh, in the golden era of cricket in England um, and uh, of course there's also the notable point that early on in the game the Australian uh, cricket board are developing variations on the rules uh, so they have their own uh, they're, they're essentially asserting you know their own legislative uh, semi-autonomy uh, over the way the game is played on the other side of the world and what that's a kind of a, a window into is the way in which uh, the Australians idea of themselves is developing and is reflected through cricket so the Aussie idea of themselves as being you know hard playing uh, but uh, democratic uh, it, it's a democratic game in Australia, whereas in England it's still hidebound with class, privilege, tradition, amateurs, professionals, uh, to the extent whereby they're, even when the early MCC sides are touring in Australia, they have separate hotels for the amateurs and the professionals. I mean, they don't even stay in the same hotels early on. I mean, I think that's probably changed by the time of the Bodyline Tour, I'm not sure. Um, but certainly there's this complete contrast between the way the game is uh, developing in Australia and the way it's becoming more and more hidebound with uh, class demarcations uh, and pomposity and all the pomp of empire in, uh, in Britain. Um, I think that's more of a statement, really, but I could finish it think... off by saying, would you not say? <laughs> I, th I think... Class is much more of an issue in English cricket than it is in Australian cricket. It doesn't mean that it doesn't occasionally uh, come up in Australian cricket, but it tends to be uh, other issues like the religious ones that uh, I've explained and some other uh, differences that, that, that crop up. So, but it's not fundamentally class. But class in uh, English cricket was never a completely static thing. So although by 1932-3 there was this formal distinction between uh, amateur and professional, there was some blurring of the lines and there was an accommodation uh, with the professionals. It wasn't until uh, Hutton was appointed as England captain in the 1950s that England had a professional uh, captain. Uh, for Hammond's brief spell as uh, captain in the late 40s, um, he changed from being a professional to being an amateur so that he could then have a stab at being England captain. Fortunately, he was past it by that time and uh, that period of his cricket career is probably best for gone. Um, but so there were subtle gradations amongst the professionals uh, playing in 1932-3. Uh, uh, a lot of, some of those would, would be seen as uh, establishment people. Uh, they were sort of social climbers, people like uh, Sutcliffe and Ames to a certain extent. Uh, I had a look at Les Ames' biography and I was wondering why he was so proud of his pictures with Ted Heath. But he was actually quite a similar sort of person to Ted Heath. They, they were from very similar backgrounds, sons of builders in East Kent and so on. Ames was five years older than Heath, but they, they had very similar trajectories. Um, so in terms of background, the sorts of schools they went to, Wyatt, who was uh, an amateur and vice captain, went to a fee-paying grammar school 
as did Hammond, uh, who, who was a professional. Uh, and so in class terms, there wasn't a great deal of difference between them. Wyatt happened to go to the same school as Martin Jakes, <laughs> not at the same time, King Henry VIII's school in Coventry. <laughs> um, so there, there were gradations, there were accommodations there. Um, as I said earlier, Sutcliffe was a senior professional, which meant that he actually had more say uh, as, you know, he's effectively vice captain. Wyatt was the nominal vice captain, but Sutcliffe actually pulled a lot of the, pulled a lot of the levers. So the amateur professional divide, which didn't end until uh, 1963, was already under severe strain. What happened after the war when um, Hutton became captain, put it under even greater strain. It was just nonsensical by the, the late 50s and 60s. So that class tension wasn't a completely static thing. So what do you think about that 1984 Australian series called Bodyline, which seems to actually colour and reflect Australian perceptions of the series and indeed of themselves? Many would regard it as massively insulting to, well, to Harold Larwood and indeed to the facts. What's your take on that one, sir? Uh, an emotional uh, series, um, not all based on, on fact. Um, it was dressing something up for for TV and tr trying to inject uh, artificial elements of drama when there was actually quite enough drama in in the thing altogether. Um, when we started looking at this, I got in touch with, uh, as I said, my brother has lived most of his adult life in Australia. So I uh, got in touch with his wife, who's, who's Australian. And uh, she said that she learnt most of what she knew about it from that series. But in the last few weeks, has looked into, into this more and realised how shallow that seri series was. So. Um, there's a whole generation of uh, Australians, uh, like my sister-in-law, uh, who've just accepted that series as the, the way in which Australians uh, view it. But there's, a, there's actually more to it than that. So it has set a benchmark for the Australian reaction, which isn't absolutely based on the truth. There's, there's a lot of truth in it, but uh, it's not. Uh, not the whole story, or indeed how some Australians reacted at the time. Absolutely not. No, it's very much heroic ochre Australians responding yep. to a bunch of evil poms doing evil colonial imperialist things. Uh, and there might be certain elements of truth in that one, but it does show the power of the media uh, in shaping the way people think uh, and indeed attitudes. Uh, getting back to uh, the Australian political element to a certain extent and some of the rosy uh, the rosy-eyed views of the empire. I imagine the Irish Catholics didn't share this view of the empire. No. Um, even pe people whose families had been in uh, Australia for several generations, like Leo O'Brien, who played in two of the test matches, um, his great-grandfather, I think, had gone to Australia in 1850 for the gold rush. Um, but his family had looked at the whole drive for Irish independence and so on and been emboldened by that. So the likes of O'Reilly, um, McCabe and O'Brien uh, were all, they probably wouldn't describe themselves as Irish nationalists, but they, they, they saw more of an Irish identity as a result of the struggle in, in Ireland and they associated with that. Um, so they saw themselves as Austra Australians, but they saw themselves as Irish Australians rather than British Australians. And uh, what do you think lies behind the very warm reception 
that was given to Harold Wildwood whenever he moved to Australia. I'm just going to talk here about the Irish element there. So I get the impression that Fingleton became a good mate of Larwood's. Uh, and uh, many people in Australia seem to identify with Larwood as a good regular working class guy, rather than as some kind of peon of the empire. So whenever he moved there, and I think it was 1950, he got one hell of a reception and became a bit of a local celebrity. Uh, do you think that element lies behind that? They, they recognised that he'd been dumped on by, by the establishment. They recognised his working class credentials, um, which, which he kept uh, to the end. Um, so it was Fingleton played a big part in getting his move sorted out. Also got him a job with Pepsi as a lorry driver and so on. So people respected that. Um, and... Uh, he, he was straightforward and, and honest with, 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 with people uh, and he enjoyed it in uh, Australia, um, so, so did his family. Um, in 1993, uh, when Major was uh, British Prime Minister, he realised that Larwood hadn't been honoured, hadn't got any sort of uh, Award. Uh, so he proposed that yeah, Larwood should have an OBE. Uh, Major, being a cricket fan, rang Larwood up. Larwood accepted. Uh, and the next uh, couple of couple of days later, uh, there was uh, the closure of uh, the coal industry. So uh, Larwood was asked about this and said, "I wish I knew." I wish I'd known he was planning to throw 30,000 blokes out of the pit. If I had, I'd have given him a right ear bashing. So he, he was still a miner uh, at heart and still cared about, about the miners right up until his death. And that went down well in Australia. Yeah, the contrast between his perception and what they were saying about him in the 1930s during <coughs> Uh, is massive and uh, a tribute to the Australians, I guess. And uh, I got the impression reading about Wildwood that uh, he seemed in many ways much more comfortable and happy in Australia than he ever was in the UK. Yeah, he was. Um, <clears throat> his, his life was more secure. Um, there wasn't the, um, you know, he, he felt that, that, that it was, you know, the, the class issue, uh, you know, he felt more comfortable in Australia as a working class bloke with, with a reputation, uh, obviously, um, but he, he did feel more comfortable there and his daughters felt more comfortable there, there as well. Um, they, they'd been unhappy with the scrutiny that he'd been under in England and once they were in Australia, they were just ordinary Australian women. Uh, Hugh, the last question from me, and it's more of a kind of cricketing one. Do you think it's a shame that the Bodywine Tour, we talk most of the time about the politics and about the aggravation, rather than the fact that it was a fantastic test series of cricket with some of the best players the game has ever seen taking part? Yes, and I think there are people in Australian cricket who regret the fact that, that uh, cable saying unsportsmanlike were, was sent. Um, I think Woodfall, uh, who was the Australian captain, in hindsight thought that that was probably the, the, the wrong reaction. Um, the, the bleating to the MCC made, made uh, Australia look weak. Um, so I think a lot of thing, things can be done with hindsight that uh, it probably wasn't a good idea to send that cable because it did put uh, the Australian Cricket Board in a, in a weak position and the likes of Jimmy Thomas knew how to exploit that. Um, but it did change uh, the relationship. So it is a shame that that's happened, but it's not the only uh, tour where sort of moral panics uh, have set in that's been a, a pattern uh, through Australian uh, sorry through cricket history 
if, if you look at uh, the confected outrage uh, in the 70s when West Indies uh, went to a tactic of having four fast bowlers, mm -hmm. you know, people saying it wasn't cricket and so on. So this was the cricket establishment. And uh, by and large, they, they, they were saying it because it was black cricketers. The same thing happened in uh, the early 1990s when uh, Pakistan had uh, Wasim Akram and Waka Yunus and they were very effective, absolutely brilliant bowlers. And so the implication from the cricket establishment was they must be cheating, they must be ball tampering. You know, it can't be fair, you know, because we, we're getting beaten by Pakistanis. So they must be, che they must be cheating. When uh, Sri Lanka came into test cricket with Muralithran and Muralithran was get, beating everybody in the world, oh, you must be chucking it. You know, so these moral panics that have come up uh, time and time again. Um, but the, the way in which cricket is governed has moved on a bit. Um, so it's moved from uh, the imperial model that we saw uh, in uh, the 1930s to uh, a purely capitalist model now uh, where in England have got a, a ludicrously packed schedule uh, for 2021 because that's what that's what makes money so they're having to pay play five tests in, in India if New Zealand were to go there they might get two tests or something so uh, the whole thing uh, has become distorted into this ultra free market uh, capitalist uh, system, which is creating all sorts of problems in cricket and the development of cricket. Uh, got the nonsense of the hundred in English domestic cricket uh, next next season, uh, which is depriving. Uh, proper cricket lovers, I, I'd say, of cricket as, as we know it. That's not to say that there can't be some development of games in other sports. There's going to have to be developments to deal with sort of all the concussion problems in rugby and uh, football as, as well. So games will change, uh, but the, the model of uh, administration has moved on from imperial to ultra-capitalist now. Um, Do you think cricket will, in the future, the development will reflect India's growing economic and political power? It already has. That's the Indian Premier it, League for you, IPL. It, India are calling all the shots in world cricket. And it's not just the massive uh, financial power of the IPL, or, the, or rather the, the massive financial power of the uh, IPL to attract advertisers. It's... Um, also, the appeal of cricket as a, and this is something that probably does go back to the 18th century, the appeal of cricket as a game that you can gamble on. Um, it, it's, it's massively important in the development of the economics of cricket, the extent to which the game can be used to make side bets. Um, I mean, it's, there are so many variables in cricket. It's, it's, it's a very you know, underappreciated uh, but important part of the finances of the game that it just lends itself to this immense number of opportunities of uh, making substantial wages on the outcome of matches, of innings, of overs. Uh, it's, it's just quite incredible how it lends itself to the gambling industry. Do you, I mean, do you, do you think that's still playing as big a role as it did a few years ago? It, it is a problem. Um, I, I think the, the situations uh, better than uh, it was, say, five, five years ago. But it doesn't mean that that, go, that that goes away. It's one of the unfortunate things in cricket that, that it does provide those opportunities. So it, it's, it's a constant problem and one that the cricket has to be vigilant about. It, uh, it is a bit of a problem where a lot of the advertising in cricket um, is by betting companies, where uh, cricket administrators move between cricket administration and betting companies and, and backwards and forwards. And I think that's got to stop if cricket's going to uh, 
clear its name on betting. So the, the uh, chief executive of Gloucestershire County Cricket Club at the moment uh, used to work for Betfair. Now he's a decent bloke and is encouraging the uh, the club down fairly progressive lines, but it still sends the wrong signal that he used to work for a betting company. Yeah, well, betting companies are prepared to employ just about anyone, aren't they? I mean, I think they've even employed Tom Watson these days. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm not sure if there are any further areas or avenues that we want to explore in this discussion. I mean, can, can I just chuck it back at you, Hugh, and say, is, is there something that you want to reflect on that comes out of this discussion about the Bodyline Tour and its legacy and uh, the underlying crisis in empire that it exposed that you think that we haven't uh, sufficiently touched on yet? I, I did want to add one uh, little thing about Bradman, which isn't a, a big picture. Um, so Bradman was brought up on a farm, so a fairly small farm, so not, not a great deal of money in his family. Um, which is why when he uh, got in the Australian side, he was doing these uh, cricket columns in, in various papers. Um, after the tour in the Bodyline tour, 32-33, Harry Hodgetts, who'd been one of the people who'd uh, pushed for the, the telegram to be sent, who was the uh, president of the South Australian uh, board, uh, took Bradman under his wing and in 1934 Bradman moved from New South Wales to Adelaide and went to work in Hodgett's stockbrokers and part of the deal was that he became captain of South Australia which was obviously a stepping stone to him becoming the Australian captain. When the war started Bradman was conveniently found to have bad feet and was deemed not suitable for uh, combat service and so he was thrown out of the army a couple of weeks after he was drafted in. In 1942 he became a full member of the Adelaide Stock Exchange so it was sort of in partnership with Hodgetts by that time. In 1945 Hodgetts was jailed for fraud, false pretenses and bankruptcy and served 12 years Bradman took on Hodgett's entire class client list and he made an absolute fortune. Uh, the official state history of South Australia states that Bradman went on to hold important company directorships, not without controversy. <laughs> and Harold Larwood disliked him until the very end, didn't they? They met a couple of times, but uh, yes. uh, they could never go ahead and breach uh, those old uh, bar barmies. And also, I, I guess, Larwood recognised Bradman as a class enemy, as indeed he most certainly was. Talking about fast bowlers, had the Australians retaliated, would the Test Series have gone differently? If they bowled fast leg theory at the Brits, would have that made much difference? And, 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 on, a, and on a parallel note, why the hell didn't they retaliate? Why didn't they bowl fast leg theory? There were a number of people uh, who were pushing for them to do it. Uh, Vic Richardson, who was uh, an Australian batsman who played all those uh, test matches, who was quite a senior figure. Um, I think he did uh, captain Australia for about a year before Bradman uh, took over in the late uh, 30s. Uh, but Vic Richardson uh, said that he would have done it and Australia would have got better results. Um, Richardson was grandfather of the Chapel brothers and I saw uh, an interview with Ian Chapel recently where uh, he remembers his granddad telling me that uh, he believed that they should have played more fast bowlers and gone like for like and Fingleton who was dropped halfway through the series also believes that that's what should have happened. Why didn't they? Uh, Woodfall, who was the captain, genuinely 
believed in the spirit of the game. Um, he was sort of determined to maintain the standards to be upright. Whatever the English were doing, he was going to play the game uh, the, the right way. And I think it, it was Woodfall uh, in, himself that uh, managed to hold the line on that. Being cynical, could it also be because they didn't have bowlers of the uh, the quality to play the same way that Wildwood did? Because apparently bowling fast leg theory isn't the easiest thing. That may that may be part of it, but the, but there were other bowlers who could have been brought in. So Harry Alexander, who played in the last Test match when Tim Wall uh, was injured, uh, was one of the fastest bowlers in, in Australia. Um, Eddie Gilbert, who I've mentioned, the Aborigine, was very fast as well. So there were a couple that could have been uh, brought in and there were people within the team who were angling for that. I'm going to suggest that this brings us to a, a natural uh, end to this discussion. I uh, just want to um, thank Hugh Kirkbride again, uh, who's shown his uh, deep and uh, impressive knowledge of Australian cricket, of world cricket, and of uh, also the trade union movement um, and labour movement more generally um, in Australia. And as you'd expect from somebody who's a lifelong member of the Transport and General Workers Union and Unite the Union, uh, and as we said before, Gloucestershire Cricket Club. So I want to say thanks very much uh, to Hugh Kirkbride for talking with us. And this is uh, an episode of Redcast, which uh, will be broadcast very shortly. Thank you very much. Oh, Ireland and Australia, we're walking down the road. Said Ireland to Australia, will you help me with my load? I've got fiends, I've got criminals, take them off my hands. Send them for a holiday, down to Van Diemen's land. Ha ha ha, walk some diddly arrow, walk some diddly dee. I've got all the wretched misery human life can be People starving in their houses for the want of a bite to eat Broken-hearted miscreants who wish had never been born For stealing of a loaf of bread or a half an ear of corn Ha ha! Watch some diddly air, watch some deep and diddly dee Who's superior? Who's inferior? Who's talking down to who? Ah, the world is always turning and underneath she's burning This world is made of wonder, of thunder and of plunder This world is made of love Who's down under? Who's up above? Ah!